We're back. It's the Flat Out RC Podcast. Andrew Sill, your host, coming to you live from the land down under Melbourne, Australia. And what are we doing? We're talking all things radio control, planes, drones, and helis. Well, I say it every week, another good episode for you. And this week is an enjoyable one. Uh, joining me as a special guest, well, joining us as my special guest, I should say, is uh, Andrew Meyer. Andrew is a glider guy. Coming from South Australia, he competes in various uh, gliding disciplines. So if you're into gliding or want to know more a bit about competitive gliding and the world champ experiences and things like that, stay tuned because Andrew's a good guy doing some really good things in the gliding scene. So that is coming up. But before then, let's have a look what's been on my mind. Well, the Bansdale event was run, the mid-May muster, which I was hoping to get to, uh, which was supposed to be on last weekend, uh, was postponed due to the weather. And I tell you what, they had perfect weather conditions. I wasn't able to attend. I had uh, another appointment up at my holiday house. May have involved riding a dirt bike, but was on the on the plan. The family was going to get up there, and mother-in-law came as well, so I couldn't couldn't back down. But uh, my buddies, my flying buddies, all went down to Bansdale. And let's just say, I'm recording this on a Sunday evening, and they're still there. And some of them have been there since Friday evening. Uh, so that's how good the Bansdale club has been to them. That they they keep on coming. They they don't want to leave basically. So they're going to make a very long weekend of it uh, down at the Benzo Club. But uh spoke to Tony Wilson, who was on the podcast oh, early this year, and Tony said the event was really good, about 30 pilots. He said at one stage there were 80 cars in the car park, which means there's a lot of people watching, spectators. Uh, they sold lots of food through the canteen, which is good, which always helps the club bolster the bank balance, which is always welcome, helps them to invest in their field a bit more. So well done to the Bansdale Club and well done to those that – attended the event. Now, whilst I was up at my holiday house, I did fly something. And uh, last week, I took delivery of the DJI FPV drone. Now, it's something that I had my eyes on when it came out. And I thought, man, this is not a bad little platform for filming. Uh, you know, I do, I do a fair bit of video work. And I thought, this could not, this might be a good little platform for chasing things down like motorbikes or cars and things like that because it's a bit more speed. And so I ended up splashing out and getting one. Um, my friend Kieran got one at the same time, so I've been comparing notes. Uh, so what's my experience been like flying that drone? Well, if you don't know anything about the drone, FPV, first-person view, it means you wear goggles and it basically feels like you're sitting on top of the drone flying it around. And FPV's been around for, for quite a while now, a number of years at least. Um, and I have flown other FPV drones. I've got some racing drones, that kind of thing. Moving to the DJI platform is, is a, I think it's a different category to a normal racing drone in that um, you can fly it with assistance. So if any of you have flown a DJI drone, you know that you know, the, the, the sticks are centered and when you let go of the sticks, the, the drone just stops and hovers wherever you stopped. Uh, you can do this with the FPV drone. You can have uh, the um, you know, return to home functions that, you know, if you lose radio connection, it will fly back because it's a GPS in the drone. Uh, 
And the FPV drone has this when you fly it in normal mode. In normal mode, it actually has sensors as well. So if you're heading towards trees, it will warn you and slow down. If you put it in sport mode, it won't do that, but it will go faster and a bit more, a bit more agile. But if you let go of the sticks, it will still center. And then you can put it into fully manual mode. That's uh, You can undo a screw on the back of the transmitter, release that throttle stick so that you've got full uh, articulation from zero throttle to 100%, and, but you've got to fly it. There's no GPS. But you do have a panic button. You can actually, uh, you know, when you're flying in manual mode, flip it over to pause the drone, basically, and it will sit there and go back to normal mode automatically and hover the drone. And then you can go back to manual mode, of course, after that. But you know, that's only if you're in trouble. So I did like, I do like having these safety aspects uh, to the drone. Plus, you get an extended battery life. If anybody's got a racing drone, if you fly it flat out, you probably get two, two and a half minutes at best. You can trundle around, get five or six, but you're really trundling around. With the F, with the, the DJI FPV drone, I was getting oh, easily 10 minutes of flying, especially if you fly it, say, in normal mode, which goes a bit slower. But even then, it wasn't too bad flying at that speed. It's still faster than one of the normal drones. And I found that I could cover a lot of ground. Now, the other advantage also of the, F, the DJI drone is the distance in which you can fly away. Now, they claim four kilometers, but um, I didn't get near four kilometers, and I was about to test it, but I didn't get near four kilometers. Uh, at one stage, I did lose radio connection and vision, and uh, it returned. It started to return to home, and basically what ended up happening is I, it only needed to travel maybe 10 meters, and I got all the connection back. It started to head home, and the vision came back, and I could override it and just continue to fly. So I like those safety features, and if you're working in a in a in a video scenario, extended battery life, uh, the safety net of being able to fly uh, in a you know semi-controlled way can actually help. And then if you want to go into a bit more wild and loop and rolls and things like that, you can do that in manual mode. And it, it, the speed's not too bad. It was actually all right. Uh, the vision out of the DJI goggles is just unbelievable. Uh, so if you've if you've flown normal FPV with you know fat shark style goggles, then you know that you're looking at an analog feed that is pretty. Oh, it's okay. It's passable. It's good for when you're scooting around the sky. If you're doing freestyle or racing, you know it's probably okay where you're just going after some gates. But if you want to get that full immersive experience, and and you know the DJI goggles just phenomenal. Um, the DJI goggles digital, and they, they do have some latency compared to, say, the analog system, but I didn't notice it, not for what I was doing. But what I found is I could pick gaps quite easily because the vision it gives you because the vision is so sharp, it gives you confidence. And so if you want to pick a gap between tree branches, you just go for it. I found myself flying through my holiday house down the driveway between a few cars, probably about a foot off the ground. And I didn't have a concern, especially when it's in normal mode or sport mode where you've got that auto leveling kind of function. Uh, it gives you that confidence to go and do that kind of stuff. So if you're trying to film and capture something like that, you're going to be confident, more confident straight away. And for me, it's about the filming. You know, what am I going to capture through the camera? When it comes to the camera, what is it like? Well, it's passable. I wouldn't say it's really high spec. Uh, it's okay. It'd be good for YouTube, uh, but it's not going to give you that super, super, super sharp image that you see with you know better cameras. But for what it is, it, it's good. It's got a it's got a sort of a one angle sort of 
gimbal on the on the camera, so it moves up and down. Uh, and so basically, when you turn the drone, it will still tilt and show on the camera versus a um, you know a normal DJI drone will just always have a, a, a level image. And I didn't mind that at all. Uh, and uh, what the advantage is, is, if I wanted to say check my landing position, I could just tilt the camera all the way down. There's you know quick quick buttons to connect on the radio. Uh, the other thing actually was interesting is with the goggles, I, I wear glasses and I have actually ordered some lenses to go into the goggles because uh, I'm short-sighted and that means I can't see properly through FPV goggles. But I actually kept my glasses on because my, my lenses haven't arrived. They have been shipped. They've just been shipped. I've got notification. But I kept my glasses on and they work perfectly. Uh, inside the goggles because the, the DJI goggles are quite big, big sort of head unit. So I could get my glasses in there and that actually is not bad at all because now I can pull the goggles off. If the drone's near me, I can pull the goggles off and land it without having to, you know, not be still blind uh, or do it with the with the goggles on. Same with taking off. You can take off and then put the goggles on if you want. Uh, when My eyesight's pretty bad. And uh, if I have my glasses off, I'm like Louis the Fly, I can't see a thing. So it's not that safe. So, But anyway, I'm going to try these lenses out uh, and no doubt they'll be fine um, and see what that, that vision is like compared to wearing my glasses, which it may be better, um, which would be good. There's a little bit of light leakage coming in from the goggles. The fat sharks are pretty tight and pretty dark in there, but uh, there is a little bit of leakage. But actually, you know what? One of the advantages is that you can actually, if you if you tilt your eyes down, you can see sort of down the um the through the bottom of the um the goggles, or at least in my, on my face. And I didn't mind that because I could look down and actually see the transmitter. If I forgot what button was what on the transmitter, I could actually point my eyes down and look through the gap and uh, press the button and keep on going. So all in all, how do I rate it? I actually thought it was really really good. If, if you want an FPV racing drone, go and buy an FPV racing drone. It'll be more nimble. It will go faster. Uh, and, you know, if you want to do freestyle, it's probably the perfect drone. I haven't flown in manual mode yet. I will get to that. That won't be a problem. But um, for the – it's a, again, it's a different style of flying that you do with a DJI drone. And as I said, from a filming platform perspective, I think it's awesome because of the confidence it gives you. Something as simple as a panic button that you can press if you're feeling a bit out of control and the thing will just hover is great. The the, the improved vision from the, the HD goggles uh, really, really helps. Again, gives you confidence. You can be a bit more accurate in the positioning. Uh, the assistance that the DJI FPV drone can give you with the GPS and the auto leveling and all that, again, actually works really, really well from a, from a filming perspective. Uh, it smooths out everything, which is what you're looking for when you're filming. So as a filming platform, I think it's going to be really, really good. Really, really good. I actually think that for many people that haven't bought a DJI drone, would you go something like the Mavic Air 2 or would you go the FPV drone? Well, the FPV drone and the Mavic Air 2 can do very, very similar things from a filming perspective, but you probably have more fun with the FPV drone. And that's what I found. I, I found myself just flying up a hillside. Uh, and didn't have an issue. And the goggles give you a lot of feedback. You can see your radio signal strength, your, your display strength. So you know if you're getting a bit further out, the signal's going to get weak. You know well in advance that it's getting getting weak. And 
just little things like that. Your ba- it shows you your battery level and it gives you a countdown of how long you've got to fly. So, you know, it was showing 10 minutes to go kind of thing based on your battery level and how you're flying. And I thought that was excellent. Return to home, of course, uh, is a great um, a great feature to have as well. Just, again, a safety net um, that uh, you can have in place if something goes wrong. So all in all, I, I give it probably at least an 8 out of 10. Uh, not a 10 out of 10 because I think the, the video quality could improve, which no doubt in future iterations it will be better. Uh, it just has. To, that's what DJI do. They need to give themselves room to move, and one of the areas that they move is they, they move up to is better camera technology. Um, battery life was good. Batteries. I've got three batteries. I've got the Fly More combo, and they take a bit of time to um, to charge, but you get plenty, plenty of runtime. So three batteries is going to be more than enough because that's equivalent to probably having ten normal lipos uh, because <laughs> the flight time is so much longer. Uh, even more, yeah, no, about 10, nine to 10. Uh, so yeah, at least a strong eight out of 10. Good choice, well done, DJI. Now, I'll probably end up doing a video on them as well and of my prescription lenses. So if you're interested, just subscribe to the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and stay tuned. Something will happen in the near future, hopefully. But it's all home, safe and sound. I can't wait to get out again with my DJI FPV drone. Guest time, and as I mentioned at the start of the show, Andrew Meyer is our guest today. And I, I do like to mix up the guests, uh, you know, and cover the different categories of flying just to to keep us engaged rather than just having the same old category all the time. So you know, we've had turbines and aerobatics, and and uh, we're back to gliding this week. And um, I love gliding. It's I always say that aerobatics. And gliding are probably my two passions um, in flying. I like everything, really. I just talked about flying a drone, FPV drone. I really enjoyed that. I've got everything from radio-controlled paramotors, gliders, you name it. I've got a radio-controlled yacht, and that that's a lot of fun as well, go racing with that. But uh, gliding is something that I do enjoy, and I saw Andrew's name in some results. I think it was South Australian Championships, and, and Andrew won, and, and I thought, oh, I need a gliding guess. Let's see if Andrew wants to come on board. And, of course, he said yes. And so we cover a lot of different areas around Andrew's gliding, um, including his activities as a member of the Australian team in in various different disciplines. So I'm not going to tell you everything. I'll leave, you, leave it up to Andrew to explain what he's, uh, what he's been up to, And uh, but you will enjoy it. So over to my chat with Andrew Meyer. This week, we're back to gliding on the Flat Out RC podcast, and joining me is... An Australian gun at gliding, Andrew Meyer. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Well, I I was speaking to you earlier, saying how I like to have a, a mix of different categories in the Flat Out RC podcast, and it, it's gliding's turn this week. And and haven't had someone talking gliding for a while, and and it's it's something that I love. I actually do enjoy enjoy gliding. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? Um, so I probably uh, I probably played with aero models in in one sort of another since I can since I can remember. Um, probably my uh, if you ask my mother, she would say that she's responsible for it um, because uh, she started buying me little rubber band wind up models, um, and uh, that that was you know that was the beginning. I still have I still have some rubber wind up models, but uh, what I find is uh, as I get older, my uh, my models just get more expensive and more complicated, but 
Yeah, I've been. Um, I uh, probably started in uh, in New South Wales, uh, where I was born. Um, I had a, a powered glider, flew at a at a club there for a while. Sort of lost interest for a while, um, uh, a bit through high school, and then you know towards the end of uh, of university, I started getting back into into error modelling uh, more seriously. And uh, I got my first uh, sort of open thermal, fully moulded aircraft. Um, and then, yeah, since I've um, since I've been working, um, I uh, uh, have just uh, you know continued to to get more interested and uh, and try and compete more and more. Well, what's interesting is I've always talked a lot about how most guys have a bit of a lull, sort of teenage years and that kind of thing. So, what what was it that really brought you back into flying model planes? Yeah, I think the the big thing for me at the time was that um, there was a lot of uh, sort of around about the time I was I was going through university, there was a a big uptick in in electric flying. So, um, you know, my original model had a little uh, ASP twelve on the front, um, you know, with uh, with glow fuel, and um, yeah, as I was going through university, there was sort of the, the beginning of electric. Uh, flying and you know that was uh, you know brushless motors started to become available so power started to become a bit more plentiful um, probably the big thing was uh, lithium batteries um, you know the the good old lipolys that we uh, that we use now started to become available and um, you know that was that was pretty interesting for me because um, you know I was studying uh, mechatronic engineering at the time and you know to see some of the uh, uh, you know, sort of the power power electronics that were were suddenly becoming available, little helicopters, electric helicopters. Um, that's sort of what really got me got me back interested. Um, and then, um, I guess for me, the um, you know the appeal of gliding in some ways is um, you know some of the technology. Like if you have a look at some of the models that we fly now, you know the design process that, that that's happened, um, the guys that have, uh, have have developed the airfoils and developed the manufacturing techniques. Um, you know they're 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 as complex, if not more complex, than some of the commercial airliners that we uh, that that we fly on. Yeah, um, so you know, for me, for me, there's you know there's the there's the challenge of flying, but there's also the um, uh, the tech, and uh, yeah, so that was that was pretty interesting for me at the time, and that sort of sort of got me really back into it. It's, it's interesting. Like I spoke to Mike O'Reilly about this, and he said that the advent of or the the emergence of good electricity electronics you know brushless motors lipos and all that kind of stuff really reinvigorated the hobby and you know i think i started flying i'm, I'm young i'm older than you and i back in the 80s when i built some aeroflight gliders and things like that we always had the challenge of how we're we going to launch this thing and the yes. only realistic thing that we had was bungee you know we'd have to set it out with our fishing line and step back and all that kind of stuff yes. take that out of the equation and bring in an electric motor well it just made it more accessible and then absolutely then you saw like the advent of foam models as well that you can go and get a radian glider and go and fly that uh, you know that and they still they glide amazingly well really for what they are um that yeah i think that i, I wonder if there's going to be something else in our lifetime that will crop up that will reinvigorate people to get into the hobby like electrics did it's hard to see it you know we've seen things like um drones say come in but i don't think it's growing at the rate that people think, you know, with the FPV drone stuff. I think that it's come and people that are really into it are into it, but there's not, you know, 300 new people getting into it every month kind of thing here in Australia. It's pretty, pretty slow churn. But the so early on, let's talk about some of those models that you were flying, you know, early on. You said you, you got into your first composite model. 
what yeah. was what was that? So that was a a Pike Superior. Um, so that's made by a company called Samba, which is based out of the Czech Republic. Um, and uh, they had a they have well they have a whole series of models that uh, they, I believe they started with the uh, with the Pike Plus, and that turned into the Pike Prio, which turned into the Pike. Uh, uh, Superior, which turned into the Pike Perfect, which turns into the Pike Perfection, which turned into the Pike Dynamic, and uh, at the moment we're up to the Pike Prestige. Um, so there is uh, they've had a they've had a whole series of, uh, of of composite models, and they you know they were they were one of the the very early companies that were producing um, full composite models. Was that a was that a carbon fiber model or is it just fiberglass? Yeah, so I had a so it's a, a hollow molded carbon fiber uh, model. So the the wing was. Um, uh, at least on the model that I had was um, carbon fiber skins um, and uh, yeah carbon fuselage um, with uh, with fiberglass at the front. So um, yeah, I remember when I, I remember when I got that one that uh, we were still using 36 megahertz radios, and you know we've now obviously with the advent of 2.4 gigahertz, um, you know you don't have the giant antenna trailing out the uh, out the back of your model. And I um, yeah I remember. I remember the the dramas of getting reception in in some of those uh, you know in the in the composite models in the early days when we had to have the uh, the long thirty six megahertz antennas. That's interesting. I, I've got I bought a F five J model last year, a second hand one, because it was it was the last thing I wanted in my in my hangar. I, I, yep. I love gliding, and but I wanted a nice glider, and it either had to be a really nice scale glider or it had to be. A competition glider like an F5J, and I think I was I tended to go more towards the F5J, and the challenge of you know because it's, it's full carbon, the challenge of still with with two point four gig stuff. Um, I, I had to, there were some holes. I think the previous owner drilled some holes through the fuselage to stick some antenna through and all that kind of stuff. How do you yep. go about that? What what do you do in your models when it comes to setting up your radio gear, knowing that the, the, the um, fuselage is carbon? Yep. So most of my um, most of my models at the moment actually are are full carbon, and there's no um, uh, there is no uh, areas where I can put receivers. So at the moment, unfortunately, I have a lot of uh, whiskers. Um, so the antennas come outside the fuselage. We have sort of holes drilled in strategic places. Um, I generally try and get some antennas up on top of the wing, um, and then uh, also some antennas down. Uh, you know, coming out of the fuselage. And you know, so far I've had I've had pretty good uh, pretty good success with uh, uh, with with range and you know no radio issues really to speak of. But certainly um, you know it is challenging on these on these models, and that's you know that's something that you notice at the World Champs as well is that you know there is a, a tendency um, you know to have more and more uh, whiskers hanging out of your models. Um, you know some of my earlier uh, composite models they did have um, you know a Kevlar nose section such that you could put the antennas inside the uh, inside the fuse, but as we push for you know for lighter and lighter models, um, it seems to be more and more difficult to to get those uh, you know Kevlar sections in that are you know sort of radio transparent if you like. Yeah, it's true. What radio gear are you running? So at the moment, I've uh, I've got FR Sky in all of my um, all all of my equipment. Um, I've had uh, I've had pretty good success with that. Um, I'm just using the uh, the bog standard uh, Tyrannus. Uh, X9D, um, and you know the thing that I like about that is just the the flexibility in programming. Um, you know, it's probably um, uh, it's probably for a newbie into the uh, into the hobby, it's probably a little bit intimidating. Um, so, you know, I think the um, 
you know, the best advice I can give for people if they're, if they're interested in that is to find somebody who's got a program and take that and use that as the basis of, uh, uh, of what you start with. And then, you know, as you, as you move along, you can customise it a bit. Um, you know, there's no, there's no need to start from, from absolute scratch with it. But, you know, the flexibility of it, the, um, you know, I've had very, very good uh, reliability out of the RF link. Um, you know, I've never had any, uh, never had any knocks that I'm, uh, I'm aware of anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm running in, um, in everything at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. A friend of mine is a big advocate for FR Sky and, uh, and he says the same thing. It was a little bit daunting early on, but it's amazing how FR Sky flyers gravitate towards each other and they create their own little network of, um, you know, of information and, and, uh, he he uses it for everything. He actually was tempted to go and buy a jetty radio because he thought, oh, yeah. I might as well move to a jetty or something. And then he worked out there's no point that his radio can do everything that he needs and it does it well. The telemetry um, that he uses, which I don't, you're not allowed to use telemetry, are you? On uh, so you, are, you are allowed telemetry in, in in competition. The only two things you're allowed to to receive back from your radio are um, RSSI, the return signal strength indication. Um, and then also your battery voltage. So you're allowed to have those, and that's that's actually written in the um, uh, in the the FAI rules for um, all of the events. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty handy. Um, well, so so it sounds like you you really started off with gliding and kept with it from the start. Yeah, I've I've always had a sort of an interest in in gliders, um, and I guess partly that's because um, you know Adelaide does have the the Southern Soaring League um, so I've had a I've had pretty ready access to the uh, the glider pilots here um, you know I remember seeing uh, you know sort of being quite interested in in watching guys launch on on winch in in Victoria Park in the in the CBD there um, you know back in the back back in the pre-composite days um, and uh, yeah then you know then I saw some other some other sort of interesting forms of gliding, like discus launch gliding, F3K, and um, you know there were a number of guys in Southern Soaring League who were into that um, a few years ago, and that sort of got my interest in that. And yeah, I've I've really just I've really just stuck with gliding because it's uh, it's been something that's that's been accessible through the Southern Soaring League. Yeah, I think you know for me gliding is is one of those disciplines that it's not just about flying the model in a kind of way. It's it's about the environment and being in touch with the environment and uh, looking for something that's invisible, really, which is thermals. And absolutely. And uh, okay, this this might sound like a weird question, but do you like fishing? Um, uh, I I do I do actually like fishing. Um, I enjoy fishing. The um, oh, what I, what I was going to suggest is that I think there's a lot of similarity between um, uh, sailing and yeah. gliding. Yeah, true. Yes, um, true. You know, to me, to me, those two things are are, uh, are very similar in the sense that you have to understand the environment, you have to understand what's going on, um, you know, around you, and you know that that for me, I think, is the is a really exciting bit. You know, you've got this little three dimensional puzzle that you have to solve, um, and uh, yeah, that that is, you know, you have to read what's going on around you. You know, what's the air doing? Um, you know, where is the thermal on the field? Is there a thermal coming? Is it going? Um, you know what? What do I need to do to get into the thermal to stay in the air? Um, and you know, it's that beautiful little three D puzzle, which is you know very similar to, to to sailing. You know, I've got to understand what's going on with the wind. Where do I need to be? Where am I? Where am I headed? Um, so yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of similarity there with um, you know with some of these other things. That's true, and I think the the amazing thing about flying gliders is uh, 
you never get bored. From the time you launch to the time you land, you're thinking, you know, and I've mentioned this many times in this podcast, but I get bored easily when I'm flying model aeroplanes. And that's why sure. I gravitate towards things like aerobatics, powered flight, and then gliders. And even though a glider looks like such a graceful kind of thing, your mind is always active whilst you're flying a glider. Whereas, you know, if I'm flying a scale plane, which, you know, I've got nothing against scale planes, but flying around in circuits, after about the second circuit, I'm about to nod off. And uh, yep. which is funny because when you fly a glider, it's, it's a little bit different. But uh, it definitely is one of those things that, I don't know, it ca- it's always captivates me. I've asked many guests this question, you know, when you're, driving along in the countryside, do you look out at those paddocks and think, oh, that'd be a nice place to fly a glider? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, it, it happens fairly regularly and you have not only, you know, flatland paddocks, but, you know, as you drive down to the beach, you think, wow, that's a really nice um, hill. I could, yeah. I could throw a mop for that one. Yeah, um, it's true. This is, it's something this is like that that vision of being in a paddock flying a, flying a glider like you know, or you know throwing it off the edge of a cliff you know near the ocean or something like that there's something romantic about it I think I don't know whether that's what you know I do it all the time and I, I travel up to the country a fair bit because I've got a house up in the country and every single time I see these uh, sort of hills and some of them are like in a bowl and I think oh that'd be perfect the slopes are off multiple angles there this is awesome I wonder how you get up there I'm going to go for a search one day some of these hills and have a look but uh you when did you're you're known as a, as a competitive glider pilot uh you know you've represented Australia um you know even last weekend uh you won a competition in Adelaide uh in South Australia when did the competing side of your gliding come into your your realm. Um, I think there's there's always been sort of an interest. I mean, one one thing that I'd I'd say is that Southern Soaring League has a fairly active um, you know competition calendar, which is really good. Um, you know, for for me, one of the good things is that you know that forces you to get out and actually fly. Um, you know, and then and if you don't do so well, it sort of forces you or you know convinces you shit. I should actually go out and do yeah. some practice. Um, so uh, I think that that part of it, and you know, having a fairly active competition calendar, um, really really helped with the um, yeah, with the with the with you know becoming more competitive. Um, the uh, the other thing I think is uh, you know there's a number of big events uh, in Australia that happen every year. So the big sort of premier gliding event, which is just coming up in the next couple of weeks, is uh, is Jerilbury, um, which is a little town in in New South Wales, actually not far from where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that has been, you know, the the big uh, League of Silent Flight event um, for over forty years now. Um, and you know, I went along to that. And uh, you know, once you start going to some of these these competitions, um, it sort of becomes. It, it, I, I really enjoy it. You know, there's the, the camaraderie of, uh, of being with a group of, uh, of people who are who share the same interest um, you know there's some competition uh, in trying to fly well and you know the big thing for me is not necessarily going out to um, uh, you know to beat everybody but uh, I like to go out and, and challenge myself to fly um, you know I I, I I go out and the other thing is I, I find that it allows me to switch off you know when I'm when I'm flying in a competition I can only think about the competition I can't be thinking about work or you know what I've got to do next weekend or um you know those sorts of things and I I enjoy that part of it so for me the you know the competition part has has sort of always been there um and um 
yeah, as you as you do more uh, more practice, flying more competitions, you you definitely get better at it. Um, and that's you know I'd probably encourage other people you know, and it doesn't really matter whether it's gliding or whether it's something else, but certainly going out and getting involved in competitions um, is is very good for your skill, and it also um, you know helps. I find enjoy um, you know increase the enjoyment of the hobby. So I agree. I, well, I think. Your insight into competitions, nobody's ever mentioned it you know, or expressed it the way you have, and, and I think you're 100% right that, is, you know, especially if you, you lead a busy life, work, family, et cetera, all that kind of stuff, aeromodelling is, is an escape in a kind of way. And like we were mentioning earlier with gliding, how it's all-encompassing that you have to be involved in it. You have no mind space to think about something else. And attending, a, a, I think also what a competition does is it progresses people's development in the hobby as well. And like you said, that you got involved and the Southern Soaring League were running events and they were running a lot of events and that, you know, you participate in those and you want to keep on getting better and better, which you have just by, you know, turning up and, and, and participating. What about practice? Like how much practice are you doing in between uh, events? Um, probably the honest answer is not enough. Um, I think that uh, I try in general to get out uh, at least once a week. Um, and uh, the thing that I'm, you know, that, that I think people struggle with a lot of the time is, um, you know, just having, just working out, you know, how do you practice some of these things? So, you know, depending on, on what discipline you're flying, it's really about, you know, breaking down the task. You know, so for example, um, with F5J, you uh, the, uh, the 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 task is launch, fly, and land, um, and so you know generally if I go out and practice, I will pick you know one part of the flight, um, and I'll I'll work on that over and over again. So um, you know I might work on the landing. So rather than rather than actually starting my electric motor and um, you know flying up to a uh, hundred meters and and trying to fly for ten minutes, I will um, uh, I'll actually just hand throw the model. Um, so give it a give it a big hurl, and um, set up on my landing approach. Come in, land on the spot, um, and uh, pick up the model. Go again, um, and might I might just work on that for you know for half an hour or at least until my shoulder says I can't throw it anymore. Um, and I think you know breaking down the task that you fly and, and actually practicing that is um, uh, is a really good thing to do. Um, the other the other things I think that really help is you know if you have a um, uh, someone that you can go out and practice with or fly against. Um, you know, some of the the people I know who are who are uh, much much better pilots than me. They have um, you know like a flying buddy, let's call it, um, and they would be they would be out several times a week, and they just uh, they just fly against each other. And um, as you can imagine, there's a lot of trash talking, and um, you know they 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 compete against each other, and that's that's really how you improve is um, you know being pushed. Uh, to do some of those things. So, um, yeah, I, I try and get out um, once a week. Uh, if there's not a competition on, I'll try and go out um, and, uh, you know, pick pick one thing and, and try and work on it. Well, earlier, Ophir, you mentioned that when it comes to gliders, you actually compete in multiple different categories, everything from, you know, the F5J electric-powered flight to f3k discus launch and then there's f3j which is just your your thermal soaring um with a winch launch yep how, so I, how I, do you cover all disciplines because there's they're subtly different yeah um 
probably uh, probably not as well as I, I could if I uh, if I actually picked one and focused on it. Um, I they, they are they are very subtly different. Um, I find that there are some similarities, obviously, between them. You know, the planes fly very differently, and the um, uh, let's say the decision making sometimes is is very very different. Um, but I find that they they all sort of help. Um, you know, I, I take skills from from one or experiences from one and I apply it to the other. Um, and, you know, I think they're, I mean, for me, I like, um, you know, I like being able to compete in, in a number of different disciplines. Um, you know, Australia is, you know, whilst we're a very large country, we're only a very small population and really the glider fraternity in Australia is quite small if you compare it to, say, the United States or Europe. And um, uh, yeah, so having being able to compete in a number of different disciplines sort of allows me to to fly in a uh, in a few different groups. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I, I I enjoy it, um, and uh, yeah, I'll keep on I'll keep on trying to fly as as many different disciplines as I can. You you have travelled overseas to compete in world championships. How many how many different world championships have you competed in? So I've done I've done three world championships. Um, the first one I did back in 2018. Um, and that was uh, that was uh, for F3J in Romania, um, and so I sort of got involved in the in the World Championship scene for F3J probably on the let's call it the the trailing edge of it. Um, so I think there's been a, a pretty strong switch from F3J, so um, uh, hand tow launch through to uh, to F5J, which is the electric launch. So F3J, if you're looking at the at the rules, and they, the rules have actually just recently changed. But uh, when I went in 2018, you had to have hand towers. So the way that the models are launched, in order to get your model in the air, you need two towers um, plus uh, someone to launch your model, and uh, you stand there with your with your controls. So um, both I was I was pretty fortunate that Dad and my brother agreed to come over, and they towed for the uh, um, myself, Nick, and Carl, who went on the Australian team. Um, so. Yeah, that that's really um, you know that was actually really quite a good experience. Um, I didn't do particularly well in that event. I mean, for me, that was um, a bit. Uh, uh, I probably was a bit overawed with uh, um, you know going to Europe, seeing some of these people that you hear the hear the names of, and um, you know, see seeing how well they fly and seeing what the level of competition is like. So that was a that was a really good experience. Um, and then in 2019. Um, I went to two world championships, um, which uh, at the time was an awful lot of effort. Um, so there was one event, and then I came back to Australia. Uh, so the first the first event was in Hungary, and it was F3K. Um, and then I came back to Australia for about a week, and then I went back to Slovakia um, for uh, uh, for the F5J um, world championships. So 2019 was a big year, and um, given what happened in 2020 with COVID, I was really pleased that I did I did do that. But at the time, it was a lot of effort. Yeah, good timing, um, so, I'd say. Yeah, and out of the three, do you have a favourite? Um, I, I really enjoy I really enjoy F3K. Um, for me, there's you know there's a certain amount of like physicality involved. You know, there's actually a, um, you know put some put some grunt into the launch, and that that bit for me is. Um, uh, pretty good. It's good to. It makes it good to watch, and it's um, uh, an event that you have to make really quick decisions. Um, you know, you can't launch to uh, 200 meters with a uh, on a winch or on a uh, on a uh, tow line. 
um, or turn on your electric motor and keep on going up. You know, you, you're limited by how high you can throw the model. And, um, you know, the top top people are, are throwing models up to about 70 metres now, seven zero metres. Um, so, you know, if you've only got, if you've got 50 or 60 metres of height to, to play with, um, you know, you've got to make a decision quickly. You've got to have a good plan of where you're going. You've got to keep a good eye of what's going on on the field. Um, so for me, F3Ks, um, you know, is 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 probably the uh, the most interesting event. And how do, you, you mentioned earlier that you, you went overseas into Europe and and there's gliding's really popular in certain countries like, you know, Czechoslovakia, those, that sort of, region there seems to be a lot of uh of these these composite models coming out of that region how do yes. how do we stack up in australia compared to them and what is that difference so um tra traditionally australia has been pretty strong in the gliding so um if we go back a few years um before you know before i became um interested in competition we had david hobby who won the um the f3j world championships not once but twice um, Carl Stroutens uh, has been a you know a long time uh, sort of world championship pilot for Australia and has done very well a number of times. Um, so we do we do and then you know I guess going back further than that um, you know Mike O'Reilly um, there is uh, yeah there's definitely a number of, of Australians that have done quite well uh, overseas or very well overseas. Um, so yeah we've we've always I guess been considered to be um, you know quite competitive. It is, uh, you know, for me, when I went, it was, um, you know, a new experience. I'd not seen how, how the Europeans fly. And it was interesting for me on the, um, you know, the first world that I went to, um, uh, talking with the, with the Czech team, um, they were saying, one of the guys on their team was saying that uh, he had been, so we, the competition was in August from memory, July, August. And he had been to a major event uh, every weekend since March, um, so they uh, they have a like a pretty serious competition calendar as it starts to come out of the cold months in in Europe uh, and into into spring. They sort of get on the road and they uh, you know they go to a major competition. And what they what they mean by a major competition is probably you know competitions with more than thirty or forty people. Um, so to put that in context, we had a really big competition at at, at Southern Soaring League on Sunday, and that was sixteen pilots. Um, so, you know, the big the big difference I think between uh, the Europeans and the Australians is that you know we just don't have the competition experience that they do. Um, you know, they can go to a big competition whether it's in you know in Germany, in France, in the Czech Republic, in the Ukraine, um, you know, in Croatia, in Greece, and um, you know there are there are big uh, competitions every weekend. Um, so I think that's probably the you know the thing that we uh you know that we suffer a bit is that you know we we have a number of um events in the year but there's just not that that level of um of events probably the you know the other comment to make is um uh in in some ways you know after going to a few of these events i don't think there's a good sort of level of recognition um you know from the europeans necessarily how much effort it is to get from australia to europe with your gliders um, you know, and be there for the competition. Um, I think, you know, if you're if you're in Europe, I mean, you see, there's a there's great there's quite a big um, contingent of people who turn up with their sort of camper trailers and and camp on the field, and you know, it's a really great it's a fantastic vibe. Um, 
but yeah, I don't think there's often a um, you know an understanding of how how much effort it is to get you know just get to one of these world championship events from um, uh, from Australia. That's true. Like I'm, I spoke to a number of different pilots that have competed overseas. The, the scale guys, it just amazes me because they they often have to turn up and rebuild a lot of their models. And then you got yes. you know the, the the aerobatic guys have to cart their big models models around and the gliding. You got you know big big wingspans and things like that. Lighter, of course, which sort of helps with the shipping side of things. But it, it is a massive effort for someone in Australia to get over over to overseas. But um, and and it's a big financial commitment as well. And we were talking last last podcast uh, with Melissa Law, who's been involved with the Scale team, and it's really expensive to get everything over there um you know for yep. all the competitors absolutely and, but the I, I like i like the idea of f3k i've got a um i've got a, a a dlg f3k competition glide and i think oh if i want to go to world champs that's something that i'd love to do and, and like you mentioned earlier that uh i'll call it the athletic side of aero modeling there's nothing like it really when it comes to aero modeling that is so physical and and technique uh, uh, as well, you know, in, in in launching the glider effectively and trying to get it, you know, as much height as you can. But what I also find interesting about that F three K is, uh, you know, with F five J, it's it's always a ten minute task, isn't it? Um, Correct. And but with F three K, there's multiple different formats of competition, isn't there? Yeah. So there's um. I think actually now we're up to about fourteen or fifteen different tasks. There's been a number of new tasks that have just been added. Um, so there was, uh, in theory, supposed to be a, uh, a world championships this year for F3K, and that's obviously been cancelled because of, uh, of COVID. Um, but yeah, there's a, there was a number of, um, of, of new tasks which are, are much more complex um, that have been added because one of the one of the problems, and this was this was also true in you know in 2019 when I went to the, the world. Um, is that there's very, very little separation between, say, the top 20 pilots. Um, and so they're basically making the tasks harder and harder um, so that they try and get some more separation between pilots. But, you know, just as, a, as an example, um, you know, one of, the, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the tasks might be um, uh, five, five two-minute flights. So and you've got a 10-minute window. Um, so in that, in that uh, flight, uh, in that in that ten minute window, you have to launch. I think you have a maximum of five launches, um, and the ideal would be to get five by two minute flights. But obviously, you have to come down and you have to catch your model, at which point the clock stops, and then you have to launch your model again. So that that task is um, uh, what you would end up calling a, a quick turn task. So the idea is that as the clock is counting up towards two minutes, your timekeeper is telling you your you've got your plane on um, on approach uh, with slowing up um, with the peg on your your throw side. So as the plane comes along um, and you grab it, uh, the, the, your timer stops the, stops the clock. You immediately start running to get into your next launch and uh, um, you know throw and the clock starts again. Um, and so the ideal, the ideal would be to repeat that um, you know five times over. And uh, you know, if you look at the the top pilots who can do that, I mean, they can just about do that and lose, you know, lose less than five seconds in in a ten minute in a ten minute round. It's quite it's quite incredible to watch the uh, you know the really top pilots do those tasks. And as you say, you know, F three K is very very much about um, about technique. 
And, uh, you know, that's a that's a really good example of, you know, something you can practice. You can go out and you can just keep doing quick turns, you know, go out, throw the model, um, get it on landing approach, catch it, throw it again um, and just uh, and just work on that to improve. Now, F5J has become really, really popular, which is that electric launch uh, thermal gliding. Uh, a lot of people probably might not know what it is. Tell us a bit about that F5J competition. What does it look like? So F5J is, uh, let's call it the uh, the electric uh, equivalent of F3J, and it has a little bit more um, a little bit more complexity in it than than F3J because there is now the uh, the element of controlling the launch height. So the the basic task of, uh, of F5J is a is a 30 second launch, so a 30 second motor run, um, and you you have control over your motor during that time. You could run it. Um, uh, you, you could run it at sort of minimum RPM or you could run absolutely flat out and go as high as you like. Um, however, um, what happens is that after that 30 second finishes, there's also there's a there's a 10 second gap after your motor shuts off and you have an altimeter in your plane and it records your maximum height um, in that 30 seconds plus the 10 seconds after your motor turns off. And you, you are penalised based on the, the height that you fly to. So the higher you fly, the more penalty you have. And it's, and it's a scaled penalty. So up to 200 metres, uh, it's half a point per metre. So if you launch perfectly to 200 metres, you'll get a 100-point penalty, so half a point per metre. If you start to go over 200 metres, the, uh, um, the penalty for every metre above 200 metres is three points per metre. Um, so if you, let's say, launch to... to um, 210 metres, for example, you'll have the 100-point penalty to get up to the 200. Then you will have uh, 30 points, an additional 30 points for the additional 10 metres. Um, so your your total, um, your height penalty for that flight will be uh, uh, 130 points. So as you can see, once you start to go over 200, it really becomes uh, a pretty pretty significant penalty. Um, so that's the that's the launch part. Once that launch part is out of the way, you have a um, the remainder of the, the ten minutes uh, to fly. So um, you might choose to launch to, to ten meters, um, and uh, if you can if you can get into a thermal and, and stay off the ground for ten minutes, then that's that's perfect. Um, and the last part of the flight is uh, to be back on the ground on the on a spot. Um, at zero. So if you overfly, you get no landing points. Um, there's there's 50 points for landing, so um, it's actually a much much relaxed uh, landing task as a, as compared to F3J. So in F5J, the uh, between if you're on top of the spot, the first meter away from the spot is uh, is the 50 points. If you're from one to two meters, it goes to 45, and then um, so on and so forth. You know, two to three goes to 40, and three to four goes to 40, uh, uh, 35 rather. Um, all the way down to zero until you're off the um, off the end of the 10 meter tape. Um, so that's that's basically the task. Um, you know the challenge and uh, you know the very high level competition generally happens when thermal conditions are really good. Um, so we you know we will launch as low as we possibly can that we think we can get away with um, to to get that 10 minute flight. Um, and the, the the main the only main other rule is that if you land outside of seventy five meters from your spot, you get zero for the uh, for the flight. So there's uh, you know a big element of uh, of zero or hero in some flights where you know you've got to uh, uh, take a big risk. You know I'm not going to launch very high. I think I know where the thermal is. 
I, I go out um, under my 30 seconds of power and have a bit of a look and, yep, I think I'm in a good position. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll shut off there and, uh, you know, hope, hope that you're in the right spot. Um, so that's pretty much a, a quick summary of the F5J task. And how many rounds would they run at a typical competition? So a typical one-day competition. So, for example, on Sunday we um, uh, we had seven rounds. Um, you know, a typical you know world championship event. You know, might be between fifteen and twenty rounds. Um, you know, and that's over a over a number of days. But you know, a club a club event. You know, a, a, a quite a, a big day out might be you know seven to ten rounds. That would be a, a typical event. We do in FIJ. We have the um, uh the, the the dropper so um basically after you fly um a number of rounds um we uh we drop a score so your worst score gets dropped in the results um and that is a is an interesting way of, of normalizing the results a bit so you know because you because it is it is sometimes possible to uh to zig when you zag, should have zagged you know you turned left instead of turning right and suddenly you're on the ground um, that's that's one thing in the uh, in the sport, and in fact that 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 also was there for for F3J. Um, so there is that uh, that dropper that takes out your your lower score in a bigger competition. I actually uh, it was only not too long ago. I found myself watching an F5J competition. I think it was out of the US. And I, yes. I don't think it was any major event or anything, but I was actually captivated. You know, I was I was doing some research on F5J because I just bought an F5J glider and interested to see how it worked and. And it was literally, it was a long video and it was on a day where the thermal activity wasn't that great. And so there were a lot of planes sort of coming in after about the four or five minute mark, but then there were some other ones. Yes. That sort of thing. And you'd end up with one plane in the air and everybody's staring at this plane and it's sort of, everyone's sort of willing it on, like, can he stay it up? Can he keep it up? Can he keep it up? And uh, sure enough, he kept it up sort of longer than anybody else. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't think it was a good spectator sport, but uh, it, well, I found it really, really interesting to just keep on watching. I didn't turn it off; I just kept on playing. But, it's, uh, it's quite interesting that you say that. That it is, it is quite a good spectator sport. So, um, I took my uh, my parents came came with me to uh, to Romania and, and Slovakia, um, partly because I think they wanted a, a European holiday. But um, my mother actually commented at the uh, at the Slovakia event that she thought it was the the, the most entertaining spectator sport that she'd been to. <laughs> really? Um, so yeah, there's, there's, these these world championships are you know inevitably pretty entertaining events. Um, you know, there's lots of different people there, and um, you know, there's always something that goes slightly wrong. Um, so it, uh, it 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 is an interesting event for for people to go and watch, um, and there are always other things that are that are that are going on as well. So um. yeah, well, I, I attended a, a, a I did a video on it actually on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel on a ALES um, competition day down here at the Varms Club in Victoria, which is a, a big gliding club, and uh, it was oh, I can't remember it was it was I remember it wasn't a really really warm day, but they had this with 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 that style of competition. If anybody hasn't heard of it, it's it's altitude limited electric soaring, isn't? It? I think is what it stands for. And uh, you have a time task. So the organisers that, that day said the, the conditions aren't great, so it's a five minute task. You've got to keep your glider up for five minutes, and you've got to was it, it, it? You can run the motor. I think until one hundred twenty meters, and then it shuts off. So everybody yep. launches to one hundred twenty meters, and then you've got to do a spot landing, and again you get points and whatever for your spot landing. Now, because it was like every five minutes, 
and there were two two groups competing about what eight eight in a ra- each round, so about sixteen competitors, something like that. It it was really flowing. There was never a lull in the proceedings because the, the five minutes went really quickly. And if you you know happened to land early, you'd sit back and watch and, and see oh who's gonna who's gonna take out this round, who's man- managing the airspace better, where did they go, in which direction, which direction worked better. You were always engaged in it, and I walked away from that event thinking, "This is unreal. This is so good." Uh, and I liked that speed that there was this constant churn that you didn't have to wait very long until it was your turn again. Uh, whereas you yeah. know you go to an IMAC aerobatic event or an F three A event or something like that, and you have to sit and wait, and then every few, few hours you might get a fly. It just kept on rotating. So, did they, did they do that? In, have you have you competed in that at all in South Australia or not? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, some of our club events, we have quite similar events. You know, we have a, a two-metre event uh, where we sort of launch against each other on uh, on bungees. And, again, that, you know, very, very similar. It's a, you know, it's a flowing thing that, you know, you'll uh, go and retrieve the bungee for someone, you know, then uh, get ready to go. Um, they'll have, you know, a five-minute flight um, and then, you know, you, you're, you're up again. Um, and so most of, our, most of our club events are, are quite like that. But, you know, we'll generally have, you know, maybe three heats to a to a round. Um, you know, you you will fly in one of those heats, you'll time for someone in another one, and then you'll have the third one off to um, you know, to get yourself sorted for the next time that you fly. So um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of events where that where that flow is uh uh you know very much part of the event. Um and that's probably it's probably improved in in you know in recent years. We have a Fantastic piece of software called uh, Glider Score, which is developed by um, Jerry Carter in, in Melbourne. And uh, if you go to go online and have a look at GliderScore.com, um, you know we actually do all of our scoring. So he, he, you can you can generate a um, a competition uh, schedule out of that piece of software. Um, you know he has uh, QR codes that are generated for the scoring. So as soon as you finish a round, you can enter your uh, enter your score directly. Um, you know directly onto the onto the website. Um, and you know all of the uh, all of the results sort of uh, populate in real time. So that's I think that's really been great in terms of you know keeping a flow of the competition. Um, so it, it it even generates like a um, uh, like a a playlist of um, you know that reads out you know who who's in the next round. You know it gives you the the timing track saying you know here's the beginning of the ten minutes, here's the horn at the end of ten minutes. You know who's in the next round. Um, you know, three minutes preparation time, and that really has helped with um, with the flow. And if you go to any any sort of major gliding event in Australia now, that's that's what we use. And in fact, that's what you know they use that at all of the three uh, worlds that uh, that I went to. Yeah, no, I've heard I've heard about that, that that piece of software. Anything that can streamline that admin side of a competition, I think, is uh, is is a great thing. You know, we see it in aerobatics as well. You know, putting it into a computer directly just makes a lot of sense. Now, Absolutely. this is a question I've just thought up. What's the difference between a great gliding pilot and an average gliding pilot? And what does a what does a great pilot do that an average pilot doesn't do? I think the probably the biggest thing, um, you know, in terms of of being a really really good glider pilot, so it was probably it's probably two things. One is one is about understanding what's going on in the air, you know, in the air around you, in the in the in the region around you. Understanding about, you know, how do thermals form, you know, how do they move, you know, there's different to- different kinds of thermals, and 
Um, I talk I talk a lot a bit about this with um, uh, Marcus Stent, another another really good glider pilot from from Melbourne, and we've we've talked about this because we sort of um, you know trying to understand you know what is it that these guys who are really really good um, you know what what do they do differently? And I think you know for me it's understanding what's going on in the in the air around you, but but really you know what it comes down to is like maximizing the opportunity to um, you know to to stay in the air. So, you know, you, you do things that give you the greatest chance. So, like, my example is probably, you know, one of the uh, the, the really good pilots um, worldwide. Um, you know, you, you watch him fly and you'll see him and he'll go off to some area of the field. And, you know, I'll go off and talk to him afterwards and say, well, you know, why did, why did you go over there? And he said, well, I've been watching the sun and that's a big brown paddock. And that paddock has been in the sun for the last um, 20 minutes because, you know, the sun's come out from behind the cloud. And so odds are that, you know, there's going to be a thermal that kicks off off of that paddock. Um, and I think that's that's uh, that's really one, you know, one thing that really separates out, out good people from from great people is really um, just understanding, you know, what's going on around you and being really sort of hyper aware of what the patterns are in, in what you're seeing. Um, and then you know maximizing those opportunities to uh, to get it. So yeah, I think that's the that's probably the the biggest um, biggest differentiator between glider pilots. Well, it'd be interesting that you know when you turn up to a competition, there's multiple pilots there, and there's a, and there's a lot going on really to be to have that sort of um, be in touch with your surroundings and have that almost the the headspace to say okay. What's going on here? In between, make sure your battery's yeah. charged and the the plane's ready to go and all that kind of stuff. It's just so I think the you know the the extension of that is that you know um, if you look at the uh, the New Zealand team, um, they'll actually offer they'll often turn up to an event a couple of days before an event. You know, this is the World Championships, and one of the things that they'll do is that they'll actually go they'll go for a bit of a drive around the field and see what you know what is the terrain around the field you know are there open paddocks near the field you know what's over this tree line and start to understand a bit more about the dynamics um, in the field um, and then you know the other thing that's really important is to have a bit of a fly at the field um, you know before you start a competition because there are absolutely you know um, geographical features um, you know tree lines and things that will uh, help to kick off, you know, kick off thermals. Um, so having an understanding of that and doing some flying at the field is is absolutely, um, you know, absolutely something important. And you know, a lot of the top teams. And I, again, this goes back to, you know, we were talking about the Europeans having a lot of competition experience. Well, typically all of these events sort of happen at the same same places um, over the years. And so you know, you get used to flying at um, a particular airfield. You know, you've you've been here before. You've seen what the patterns are. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a really big uh, big benefit to to understand you know understand the field, understand how it fits geographically, you know what is around it, and um, yeah, that makes a that makes a big difference, is my observation. Where do you, um you know if someone wants to learn more about the weather, thermals, etc. Is is did you, did you go to a book or was it websites or? Where do you think people should should go to learn more about you know thermal activity? There's um there's a number of different places that you can go to. There's some there's some actually some really um, terrific books around. Um, there's one called the uh, the Buzzards Handbook, uh, written by an American 
which talks about um, talks a bit about uh, you know how thermals form, you know what what types of thermals there are, and you know it it, it really does give sort of a, a, a bit of a high level overview. Um, probably the other place that I'd be saying to go, you know, to, to to start to think about some of these things more technically is go to YouTube. Um, Joe Wirtz uh, gives some fantastic uh, lectures which have been put up on on YouTube, um, talking about you know reading what they call the third vector, so um, looking at uh, you know what's happening with the wind on the field, um, you know being able to interpret the changes in the wind to work out well what does that tell me about where the where the thermal is. And there's some fantastic resources on uh, on YouTube um, with uh, with lectures from from uh, several pilots uh, on that. So that's the that's the that's probably the you know the two places independently. And then the the third one is to you know is to start talking to um, you know other glider pilots. I think there's you know amongst the the group of pilots in Australia, I've found people to be pretty. Um, uh, uh, pretty open and and friendly about sharing information and and uh, you know everybody's still learning. I mean that's one of the nice things about glider flying is that you know you never get to a point where you say well I know it all I've seen all of these conditions before. Um, you know every time you go out there you see something different and you know you do start to recognise some patterns um, in what you see and um, yeah so I think those are the those are probably the three key key places to uh, uh, to look for more information. Yeah. Now let's talk about models that you're currently flying. What yep. are your models that you're flying in the different disciplines? So at the moment in uh, in F5J, the model that I'm flying is a Plus X, um, which is made by uh, Vladimir Models out of the Ukraine. Um, so that's a four meter uh, four meter model. Um, it comes in a number of different layups, and I have um, I have. So I have the four layups. So the the lightest model is their what they call their FAI limit model, which is right on the uh, on the limit for as light as you can go. So that weighs in at about a thousand and forty grams for a um, just on a kilo for uh, for a four meter model. It's amazing. Um, yep. And then we go up to the regular, which is about eleven hundred grams, and then the the windy, which is about thirteen hundred grams, and then they have the storm version, um, and they just get they just get heavier and heavier. Um, for F3K at the moment, I'm flying a model um, called the Snipe 2, um, and that's a, again a, a Vladimir models uh, model. Um, so that's a meter and a half. Again, there's a number of different layups that you can get. You know, a very light one, a middle or a standard one, and a um, you know a very strong one. Um, and basically, the differences there are you know how much ballast you can put on um, and what sort of wind speeds you can fly in. Um, and then for F3J, I'm flying a uh, flying Maxes, four meter Maxes. Um, so again, another Vladimir model. Um, and uh, again, there's a number of, of different layups of them. So yeah, at the moment, everything everything's Vladimir. So um, yeah, Dave from the three models I've got. Dave from Dave's it's Dave's big boys for toys uh, would be really happy to hear that since he's the uh, Vladimir models. Yep. Distributor, but uh, they oh, they're beautiful kids though. Uh, it, yeah, no, they. I they, mean, there's a number of different models around at the moment, and they're all you know they're all very very good. Um, for me, the um, you know the big differentiator has been the four meters. Um, you know, getting out to the four meter wingspan, I find in um, you know, and I, I switched uh, models a few years ago, and uh, so that I could get the the Maxa, which had a four meter wingspan. Um, and that's really the, the the big change for me was I find that in really marginal conditions when things are not good, 
having that little bit of extra wingspan going from say three point six meters to four meters makes a big difference. Mm, yeah, I'm just I'm just looking now. I've got a Explorer three Nan models. I'm trying to work out what the wingspan is exactly of it. I keep on getting confused because I think there were two different sizes of uh, of wings on that one. Um, Yep. Yeah, there's a three. Oh, there's a three and a half, three point eight, and a three and a half, and a, and a three point eight, I think. Yeah, from the yeah, that's right. Yeah. There is a, there is a, there is a, there is a explorer four meter as well. That's so, right. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at that now, but um, yeah, I've got to get it. I haven't flown it yet. I've got to. I should get should get that one in the air. That oh, fly really well. I went. I went to go and fly it, and I uh, one of the elevator servos started just twitching by itself, like sweeping through its arc by itself and went okay that ain't right and so i uh packed it up and went and bought a new servo to put, in, to put in it because i thought i'm not risking this model because this elevator servo had a mind of its own so uh that's been the holder but everything else is ready to go i you know what i don't know how you go with this but my in the, the all the cables inside my f5j model are just, it's just a, a bird's nest it, the, between the receiver and you know trying to get everything to fit basically Yep. Do you have that same problem, or is it just me? So I think the I think the biggest thing that I learned about uh, cable management in gliders is um, uh, buy yourself a a crimp tool um, such that you can crimp your own connectors onto things. Um, you know, so initially when I started out, I was probably like most people. You know, you you soldering connectors on, and you know you're cutting cutting connectors, and you've got lots of heat shrink, and you know none of your cables are quite the right size, and um, you know, it's it, it's inconvenient, and I think um, uh, I was introduced uh, quite a few years ago now to you know being able to make make these things yourself. Um, so you know you can buy the buy the uh, the servo wire, and you can buy the uh, the plugs and the, the the pins, and you know you can you can crimp everything, and by doing that, you can get everything to exactly the right length, and you can control the bird's nest inside your inside your model and. That's one thing that I, you know, that you observe when you go to, to world championships. If you if you take a look at, say, the you know the German teams models, um, I mean, the the inside of those models is absolutely immaculate. You know, they every you know they might have uh, you know three or four models on their stand, and you look at them, and they are all identical inside. And I think, um, you know, in terms of in terms of being organised for competition and making sure your gear is you know ready to go, having things you know. Uh, as as organised as you can and as easy to, to to work with as you can makes a makes a huge difference and that's you know that's something that that, that I've sort of picked up on the way is you know if you can get your if you can get all your cables to the exactly the right length then you know you're a, you're an awful long way or a lot lot closer to um, you know getting it uh, getting getting things sorted out it's one less thing to worry about yeah. when, you, when you're at a competition that's what, when I bought I was I bought this in the model second hand. And it literally took me a day and a half just to get it set up. And mind you, it was built. So I just had to put um, a receiver in and then, you know, bind it up and, and set it all up. And the first day was just getting, setting up the radio with all the different mixes or, you know, all the different, you know, landing phases and speed and thermal and all this kind of stuff, all the flap settings. And then the second day was trying to get everything to fit in the damn thing so I could put the battery in. And I found that the, yep. the battery in my model needed to go pretty far back, which was really surprising, really far back to just try to get CG. 
which I don't know why, but anyway, it's quite far back and that just made it even worse. And I was, we were trying to reroute wires and all this kind of stuff. I do have a crimping tool though, and I, I've done it before. I don't trust myself, but I, I do know how to do it and I've got all the equipment. So I'm going to, you've inspired me now. I'm going to have another look and see if I, how I can clean it up because it's just a bird's nest in there. It's terrible. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Once you once you do it and you can do it repeatedly, then you'll you'll never go back to anything else. Yeah, yeah. I've got so. friends that that love doing it, and that's why I bought the crimping tools. Because I thought I'll give it a go myself, but it's not overly hard. It's a bit of practice, but absolutely. Now the uh, I did ask you this question about whether you got a favourite, but it's sort of like you really enjoyed the the F3K, wasn't it? Yeah, I really enjoy the F3K. Um, the uh, do, do I have a uh, do I have a favourite model? I mean, I would say at the moment the um, the Plus X that I'm flying for uh, for F5J is is a pretty incredible model. Um, I think the um, you know just the, the the weights that they fly at and the conditions that you know you can uh, you can fly them in um, to me is is just really impressive. Um, you know, it's really really a pretty optimised airframe um, for the for the uh, uh, for the task that we fly. So yeah, at the moment that's 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 uh, pretty well up there in my uh, my list of favourites. Yeah, now the um, you, we mentioned the Southern Soaring League, which is a, a club in um, South Australia. Oh, like sitting over here in Melbourne and looking at what you guys are doing over there, it's just it feels like if you want to get you know if you're serious about gliding, you've got to be in the Southern Soaring League. You've got to be in South Australia, you know, because you've got some, you know lots of events and it's a vibrant community. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think there's such a a, a good movement of gliding in in South Australia? Um, I think there's a there's a, there's certainly a lot of history of the uh, of gliding in South Australia, um, and uh, I think it's you know it's it's sort of carried on um, to a certain extent. Having said that, you know there is there there are other clubs you know so um, in New South Wales, I believe it's the Heathcote Soaring League, but there's there's a number of Clubs in in New South Wales that seem to have um, uh, have an interest in gliding, um, and uh, you know they seem to have fairly regular competitions. Um, there are the uh, uh, a, a smaller number, but you know just as enthusiastic people out of um, out of Victoria, um, and there is a you know between Southern Soaring League and um, the uh, the gliding clubs in in Melbourne, um, we have a. We have a Midway Cup event, um, which actually just happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, unfortunately, South Australia lost the Midway Cup to Victoria this year, so ah. I, th- I think we lost. I think we lost by um, uh, about uh, about a hundred points in eleven thousand points. So um, that's 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 really upsetting. But um, yeah, we we do have um, uh, sort of club events between the uh, between the various states, and there are certainly people. Um, you know, in fact. Generally, we have um, you know we have a, a couple of entrants from Western Australia that come over to the uh, the Gerildery event in New South Wales. Um, so you know I, I think that there are active glider people in um, uh, in most states, um, but uh, yeah, it just depends just depends on the numbers. So. Gerildery, you know, I've read about it for many years in different magazines and things like that, and uh, it just looks like an awesome event. The field looks amazing. It's you know I was talking about looking at paddocks and going, gee, that'd be a great place to fly. Real do when I see the photos, I think, oh, that is just great. It'd be yep. good to get out there. And how many people turn up on average? Do you think to the drillery event? Um, so it's 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 probably dropped a little bit through the years. So this year, I believe they we're expecting in the order of about 40, 40 pilots. 
Um, there's been, you know, there has been a bit of a change in Derildery in the last couple of years as well. And that's that's partly because, you know, the gliding fraternity is going through a really big change at the moment. You know, so we, we're moving away gradually from F3J and we're moving more and more into F5J. So Derildery has traditionally been, um, you know, a, an event where we run Australian Open Thermal and Australian Open Thermal is sort of a modified set of F3J rules where we launch on a, on a winch instead of with hand tow. Um, and that's what it's traditionally been. And over the last couple of years, that's gradually um, that's gradually changed. Uh, you know, go, you're trying to work out a new format. This year is going to be interesting because what we're doing is we're going to do several rounds of, uh, of open thermal, so winch launch. Then we're going to do several rounds of F5J, and then we're going to do several rounds of another event which we haven't talked about called E-Res. So it's a, a two meter two meter electric uh, rudder elevator spoiler glider. Um, and uh, that, they, that's, that's something that's taken off a little bit on the East Coast in Australia um, with the uh, Australian uh, Electric Flight Association, AEFA, um, and they've, they've got this new uh, E-Res format. So I think this year a Gerildery will be quite interesting to see how that, you know, that combined uh, three different events over, um, uh, over a number of days it, it works out. Um, so yeah, we'll, I think we'll have this year about 40 pilots. So it should be uh, should be a good event. And you know, given that we didn't have one last year um, because of COVID, uh, it's going to be uh, pretty exciting to get out there with um, with a group of people again. Yeah, no, it's going to be good. Now, I did ask you. Well, you sort of covered what your favourite model is. It's it's, it's that Planemy Models X Plus, isn't it, at the moment? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know that. You're the first guest to jump into my signature move uh, question. You know, the, what has been your favourite model? Everyone waits for that 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 question. But the the X is it the X plus the one with the twin booms, or is that a variant? No, so the, so there was the uh, there was the plus plus pro, which had the uh, the twin booms, the inverted a tail, and uh, yeah, I also I also uh, flew flew those. Um, and then uh, the plus X came, and that's when they expanded the the, the wingspan out to four meters and went back to a more conventional sort of uh, um, platform. Um, so yeah, I mean they both they both fly very very well. Um, but yeah, just in terms of uh, an optimized air air um, airframe and you know handling and you know what 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 the model will do, I think it's um, you know by far the uh, uh, the best flying model that that I've had. Do, are you are you noticing differences in model from year to year, or are they sort of relatively similar between between years now? Or are, are you seeing any major jumps at all? So I think what I think what happens initially. So F five J is sort of still relatively new. So I think you go through um, uh, like a revolutionary phase, and you know when the when the original Plus Pro and the the Plus X came out, that was sort of part of the revolutionary phase, and there was a whole lot of models coming onto the market, and you know there was lots of new things, um, you know like the NAN brought out the Explorer Q, and um, Samba brought out the Pike Prestige Two PK, um, you know there, there's there's a number of different things came out, and that that was the revolutionary part, and I think what we're now going to go into is the is a bit more of the, the the evolutionary stuff. So you know now we're 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 starting to play in the in the region of trying to optimize. You know we we we've taken all of the horns off the wings. We have you know linear drives on all of our uh, on a, all of our surfaces. You know we have props that fold back um, 
beautifully against the fuselage so they, they create no drag and you know I, I've seen now videos of um, you know speed controllers that will rotate your prop around um, you know from where they stop to sort of drop into moldings on the on the side of the fuselage oh, so it's no you know, perfectly 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 uh, uh, streamlined um, and you know I think those are the sorts of, uh, of changes we're going to see um, you know going forward um yeah, i think crazy. we've gone through that you know we've gone through that initial revolution and now we're just onto the you know the evolutionary changes yeah that's true well andrew what, what's the next step for you what are you hoping to achieve with your gliding next um well i'd like to i'd like to get out and do a bit more um you know work always takes seems to take a, a bigger and bigger part of the uh, gets in the way doesn't uh, it gets it gets in the way yeah. yeah i'm yet to yet to find a job where they they pay me but i don't have to turn up <laughs> yeah. um so so that bit, that bit of it, getting it, getting out and doing a bit more regular practice. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm hoping that in the next couple of years that uh, the world will go back to a little bit of normality around travel, and we'll be able to go and do some of these world championships events again, um, because that would be uh, that would be really good to, to to continue to fly at that sort of level. Um, and um, yeah, we'll see we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure having having you on and. Uh talking to someone that's really active in that gliding scene, especially in that competitive side of things, which I think is uh, absolutely great. And I, and I wish we could see more of it uh, around the country. And uh, your insight into into all things gliding is just amazing. So, and, and well done for making the Australian team so many times, representing the country. I think it's a, that's a massive achievement, really. It sounds, sounds simple, but it's not at all, as you, as you well know. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again, Andrew, and all the best uh, in the future with your gliding. Thanks very much. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Time for me to go, but what a great episode I think we had today. Big thank you to Andrew Meyer for joining me. Uh, great to have someone back talking gliding uh, and also at that competition level with F5J and of course F3K, the discus launch which which I didn't know Andrew was a part of the Australian team at one point as well uh, flying that but you can see he's an all-rounder when it comes to gliding and especially competition there's something in the water over there in South Australia they've got a great gliding movement going on there maybe it's just a good place for gliding but uh, well done Andrew and uh, thanks for representing Australia and I think it's a massive achievement anybody that can fly for the country at any sort of uh, international level so well done Andrew now if you've enjoyed this podcast don't forget to give us a five-star rating if you're on Apple Podcasts or a like button on SoundCloud or whatever shows up on the platform that you're uh, that you're listening to that will really help the platforms promote this podcast so we get more ears on it and don't forget to subscribe and whilst you're in the mood for subscribing don't forget the flat out rc instagram and facebook pages as well as the youtube channel uh we're really trying to build up the youtube channel just got to do a few more videos busy weekends i'm a busy stage of my life 47 year old guy with two kids and a wife and lots of different activities that i like doing so time poor uh, but trust me there's more to come and this podcast still rolls on i've got a couple of interviews this week so at least we've got another two episodes but we'll have more than that so stay tuned a lot more We're having a lot of fun doing this so thanks for joining me once again i'll be back next week